This is Archive Atlanta, Episode 61, Water and Waste. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lamos. Hey guys, happy Friday. This week I'm making good on my promise to look past people and buildings and explore the physical landscape and natural resources. For most Americans, we turn on the faucet and water comes out, or we flush the toilet and we don't think twice about where it goes. But in the earliest of Atlanta's days, these were all complex issues to solve. Understanding how the water and sewer systems were created and structured is essential to understanding modern Atlanta. So today we're covering how early residents got their water, how wealth, race, and class played a part, and fun stuff like what a night soil man actually did. At the official naming of Atlanta in 1847, the need for a public sewer system or water pipes was not yet necessary. There's just not enough people living here to support such a project. Remember in episode 57 on the ward system, I said that the city leaders had a hard time even collecting taxes in Marthasville because people were just not on board with this whole cityhood thing. Most early settlers gravitated to higher spots in Atlanta, like Daniel Castleberry, whose home on Castleberry Hill was the highest natural part of the city. Yes, we had the Chattahoochee, but for early Atlantans, accessing that river would be a six-mile trek through dense woods. It just wasn't somewhere people were going to go. Three tributaries of the Chattahoochee, Peachtree, Nancy, and Utoy Creeks, are closer to early settlements. Interesting fact that I learned in this research, in the entire 19th century, only two other American cities, along with Atlanta, were built without a navigable waterway, and that would be Denver and Indianapolis. So how did the first Atlantans get water? They used buckets to bring it back from any stream or creek that was close by. Some families even constructed rain barrels, and the wealthy were able to build cisterns or spring pumps, hence why living near a natural spring was so desirable. The need for water did not reach fever pitch until the city's first real fire. The Atlanta Fire Department episode goes into a little more detail about this, but in 1850, Augustus Wheat loses all of his holdings in a huge blaze. And the city basically freaks out over the lack of a fire department and then the fire department's accessibility to water to fight these fires. The first city council members lead the charge to construct three five-foot by five-foot wells at the corners of Mitchell and Whitehall. Now Whitehall is now Peachtree. Hunter, which is now MLK and Whitehall, and Marietta Street and Peachtree Street. These are literal holes in the ground covered by a wooden plank with like a tiny bucket next to them. So not so much of a well you may think of today. They also constructed a small reservoir, and I use that term loosely, uh, behind the Holland House, which stood at Peachtree and Alabama Streets. The Civil War comes through in 1864, and in Sherman's wake, we have a city completely destroyed. So reconstruction, aside from what I talked about in episode 55, for Atlantans, it's truly rebuilding their homes, stores, buildings, and wells. The people formerly held in slavery were now free, and if they did not stay on their plantation to become sharecroppers, which was very common at first, they came to the city of Atlanta for jobs. Their choices of where to live were limited, and by limited I mean three main shanty towns, Shermantown, Summerhill, and Jenningstown. Shermantown was in the area we now call the Old Fourth Ward, and Jenningstown was atop Diamond Hill, where Morris Brown College is today. There were also small enclaves for blacks with names like Buttermilk Bottom, Happy Hollow, Campbell's Block. Uh, What most of these places, though, had in common is that they were all low-lying areas. 
with the exception of Jenningstown, which actually is what made it so special. At the end of the Civil War, ways to segregate newly freed African Americans is really a priority for the city. Power lies in those that control natural resources. And if you've lived in Georgia for more than a second, you know that water scarcity is a real current issue. We've had wars with neighboring states for this precious resource for years. In early Atlanta, access to water determined where people lived. So we've established city water is a need that an important and emerging city like Atlanta has had. There was a huge resistance to establishing waterworks, but the charge is led by Irish immigrant and city council member Anthony Murphy. Murphy would go on to lead the newly formed Board of Water Commissioners, and he surveys and researches and unveils his grand plan. And that plan is a reservoir to hold 1 million gallons of water built on the most western edge of the city proper. The city government's like, oh, yeah, well, this is cool, but we're not paying for it. Initially, the plan is to have this completed by private development. So two companies step up to the plate, both very similarly named. The Atlanta Canal and Waterworks Company was incorporated in 1869 and had familiar names like Hannibal and Kimball on its board. They received a charter to build the canal, but disbanded before starting. Then came the Atlanta Canal and Water Company, which almost immediately withdrew its offer. So now the city begrudgingly agrees to fund the Waterworks Project. In the midst of America's Great Recession in 1873, almost nothing is getting funded. But Atlanta's Board of Water Commissioners has something up its sleeve, and that is user fee funding and a $300,000 bond. By the following year, the reservoir breaks ground. 109 leased convicts, we learned about that in the episode about Chattahoochee Brick, spent months building a 51-foot dam and a tower at the South River the area that is now Lakewood Amphitheater. They also laid eight miles of cast iron pipe through the business district and installed 75 hydrants. This sounds like success, right? Not exactly. The water was pretty dirty, and quotes in the newspaper say, if you bathe in it, it will stain your shirt red. The wealthiest of Atlantans would buy their water in bottles from Ponce de Leon Springs or Angier Springs. In 1881, we have a severe drought, and by 1885, there's a crisis. In this year, the water mains are only serving 10% of the city's 9,000 homes, and we need more access to water. There's protests to the water board accusing it of preferential treatment of upper-class Atlantans. This was mainly fueled by a decision to extend pipes up to Petrie Street, where again, I did a whole episode about all the mansions that were being built there. So instead of expanding it to other parts of the city in more central areas, they're like, "Mm, no, actually, you know, these people up on Petrie Street need it. In 1886, an artesian well was built at Five Points in downtown, and four years later, it's contaminated by sewage. See, the thing is, with the focus on water coming in, we kind of forgot about the water that needs to go out. Before a city sewer system, waste is flushed away by rainwater. Now you can see the importance of living on higher ground. In 1877, Atlanta forms the first sanitary commission. Prior to this, the city's sewers were primitive and open, and the commission planned to extend all of the trunk sewers towards the outskirts of the city limits and thus going into streams near those boundaries. The thing is, the people living near these sewers and streams were working class and majority black. These sewers were almost famous. You can actually search by them by name, the most notorious being the Lloyd Street Sewer, which in 1890 dumped right into the site of an orphan home for Jewish children. By 1899, it is described by the health department as, quote, a miserable excuse for a sewer, end quote. 
Official city sanitation service does not exist until 1879, and that's only in response to fears of a yellow fever epidemic that other cities were dealing with. Before this, the city had 15 chain gang convicts on the books whose jobs were to roam and remove muck from the roadways. Now, this is horse and buggy time, so when I say muck, I mean horse manure. The sanitation department added two scavenger carts, and picture these kind of like an early form of a garbage truck. Their job was to pick up night soil, garbage, and dead animals from the road. There were independent night soil men as well, and these were people that came in the night to remove waste from people's outhouses, normally selling it to farmers outside the city limits. As the population continues to expand, there is just not enough manpower to remove this waste, and outhouses commonly overflowed. Not only that, from 1879 to 1887, this sanitation is only servicing a central small part of the city. It would finally be expanded in 1888, but the following year, the Board of Health reports that there are over 3,000 outhouses without service. But wait, it doesn't end there. Where do you think they're putting all this trash? In black or white working class neighborhoods. In 1884 alone, scavenger carts unloaded 597,520 bushels of waste into these areas. And one of the official dumping grounds being a vacant lot at the corner of Simpson and Lambert Streets. Which happened to be bordering a working class white neighborhood. Three years later, the legislature finally rules that trash must be taken outside the city limits. Black residents lived on land that whites did not want near cemeteries, industrial plants, railroad lines, flood zones, and low-lying land, like I said earlier. Although the state of Georgia would not codify segregated development until 1910, this was unofficial and yet strictly observed. What many do not realize is in these early times, both white and black people lived on the same street. It wasn't separated by vast neighborhoods or highways the way that you'd see later, but each house was predetermined to be for a black or white family. And what fascinated me the most in this research paper that I read um, was that they took a street like Edgewood, so a really long street. In 1898, the portion of that street that is 317 meters above sea level had three black homes and 11 white. As you travel down, you're going to drop 10 meters in sea level. And then the census lists 14 black homes and three white. I don't know about you, but that blew my mind. In the 1870s and early 1880s, wastewater would flow downstream into black neighborhoods. At this point, wealthier residents had very crude versions of sewer lines, but they terminated literally at the edge of their property or at the edge of their neighborhood. So imagine flushing your toilet at your home and that wastewater traveling through pipes that just open up at the end of your yard or at the end of your neighborhood. That's what we're working with. At the same time, there's increased disease coming out of these black communities. And after learning this, why wouldn't there be? Sadly, most white Atlantans at the time believed it was because African-Americans were biologically and morally inferior and just didn't know how to practice good hygiene or keep a clean home. Instead of working towards removing human waste from their communities, the idea was to offer reform programs or at worst, use policing. When you read the opinions of all white Atlanta civic leaders from this time, they don't want to pay for a sewer system with public funds because it's not their problem. In 1870, the chairman of the Board of Health says that the issue is sociological reform and not a public's work problem. 
1885, there are 17 miles of open sewer line, and almost all of them end just 600 yards from downtown Atlanta. These lines flood into black neighborhoods like Mays Alley. The mayor in that year, George Hillier, was actually the only leader that truly understood the problem, and he pushes for black communities to get clean water. Three years later, engineer Rudolph Herring reconstructs and enlarges the city's sewers, and the project takes him almost five years. All in all, we added 15 miles of lines, but these lines dumped into streams that fed into the South River. You know, the one that we just talked about where we built a giant waterworks plant. So now we're back to figuring out a new way to get water. The newest ideas of the time were to go way far up into North Georgia mountains, tap a pristine water source, and pipe it into Atlanta. Others thought that if you just got the water at some point in the Chattahoochee above the city, you'd be better. The pollution just sort of cleanses its way out as it travels south. Some crazy idea. But in 1892, the cheapest option is this crazy idea. And a waterworks station breaks ground on the banks of the Chattahoochee. There was a pumping station built near Bolton on the river banks, and then on Hemphill Avenue, a building to hold the equipment and administrative offices. A large 50-acre reservoir was also located next to the site, and pipes ran under the ground into the city. The area surrounding the waterworks was transformed into public green space. And in 1893, a crowd gathered to watch the water flow from the Chattahoochee into Atlanta's homes. And the best part is this is still a city of Atlanta waterworks today. For those that don't hang out near 17th Street or Northside Drive and Howell Mill, you can see the water reservoirs and even the historic century-old buildings. What was once open green space is no longer accessible, but there are proposals to once again make it a public park. Sadly, most black residents of the city were still getting their drinking water from contaminated wells well into the 1910s. And in the earliest part of the century, only 65% of residents in Atlanta are getting their water from municipal sources. When you look at deaths from typhoid fever or most bacterial diseases, um, these are from African-American neighborhoods. There is a lot more to talk about um, that hopefully I will cover in different future episodes on each of these topics. Um, But this is the story so far of water and waste in Atlanta. I know there's a lot. There's more to read, more to learn. So I will link a few sources in the show notes for you guys. The biggest takeaway I'd like people to have is understanding that the residential patterns of early Atlanta are all influenced from these things. This will come up again in the future, especially when you talk about planned suburbs like Inman Park, why places with natural springs like Ponce de Leon became bastions of Atlanta recreation, and lastly, how the built environment affects people's health and wellness long term. I talked about this in episode 38 on African American hospitals, but when you force people through custom or legislation to live next to open sewers and heaps of trash, it's going to affect health maternity rates, life expectancy, and things that we can't even imagine for decades to come. Thank you all for listening. If you're enjoying this podcast, do me a favor and leave a rating or review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast. If you'd like some bonus content, head on over to patreon.com forward slash archive Atlanta, where for just $1 a month, you can get too many episodes and other special bonus content. Hope everyone has a great weekend and I'll see you next week.